Hello and welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, our IFRS podcast series. This is your source for all IFRS technical accounting matters, hot topics, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we're going to look at accounting for acquisitions. So that could be an acquisition of a business or it could be an acquisition of an asset. And we've got the lady that knows to help us. We've got Mary Dolson, who is our IFRS lead technical partner. Welcome, Mary. Hi, Ruth. Happy to be here. Good. So today, businesses. How do I work out? If I've got a transaction, how do I decide if something is a business or an asset? Okay, the words in the standard say that I need to think about inputs, processes, and outputs. And so um, that's not always necessarily intuitive what those things mean. Output, an easy output is revenue. Something that's producing revenue is almost certainly a business, right? Um, but there are other revenues. So, you know, it's is it something that's valuable that would enable someone to make money with that collection of assets um, or uh, uh, activities? And what's an example of an input? People, people are inputs, right? People also, um, often bring with them inherent processes, so the people who know how to, how to do things. But you do need to look at the people and say, you know, are my people uh, highly skilled? Um, so uh, do they have like specific technical knowledge? So you might argue that if you bought a fleet of London taxis, right, actually what you get is the knowledge, literally the knowledge of the taxi drivers, right? And they're you know, they know where everything is and they know the shortcuts and know where the traffic's going to be. So there's lots of inherent processes involved in being a, a good taxi driver. And then there'd be other processes around dispatching your taxis and using the taxis more efficiently together than if you had one taxi. So there will be processes around how you organize your assets and your activities and how you use them to make money. Okay, so the standard tells us you need inputs, outputs and processes. Do you need all of those to say it's a business? You don't have to probably. Uh, you don't have to take all of the um, processes necessarily, or all of the inputs that the seller um, has. Right. So, for example, if you don't take the accounting department, right, you probably still have have a business, right? If you don't take um, maybe the head office, you you often would still have a business. Right? But if it's an important process um, or important people. Uh, then um, it's more likely that it's business. So, so business versus asset is a judgment. How, how do you make that judgment? Like many accounting judgments, some of them are just so fundamental that you don't pause for thought. So if someone, for example, bought Tesco, yeah. know, Tesco, a huge retailer in the UK, international operations, obviously a business. Right? Yeah. Stores everywhere, all these guys. Um, if you bought the corner shop, right, outside the office, right, where everybody goes for their sandwiches, yeah. that's a business as well because it's got inputs, outputs, and processes. Yeah. What if the corner shop was empty and you said, I want to start a sandwich shop there, you bought the corner shop, but you don't have any trade name or activities, or anything, that's, then you're just a startup, right? So all you've got is an empty shop, probably not a business. Okay. It, it's the difference between... Um, buying uh, a working factory and buying a garden shed. So, so quite often it's obvious, but there are industries where it's pretty gray, right? and we spend a lot of time talking about it. 
And what are those industries that you see where it's grey? I, I, I think high-tech, um, pharmaceuticals, biotech, and industries where you might go a fair amount of time before you've actually got revenue, but that doesn't mean that those companies like, for example, can't go to the capital markets and can't get venture capital funding and, and things like that. So, so there's a long lead time, activities, businesses where you have a long lead time before you've got products can still be businesses way before they're producing revenue. So an oil and gas field, once they've got a development plan, is usually deemed to be a business. Right? In, um, bio, in the biotech space, you see transactions where um, the acquirer gets not only all the scientific know-how and the patents and the IP, they also take the founding scientists and um, all of the processes and the data that's been accumulated so far. It's probably starting to look like a business. Okay. So if you're looking, so we know what the standard says. It says you need inputs, outputs, and processes. As a business combinations partner, if someone comes to you and says, is this a business or an asset, what do you look for? Sometimes it, it's, um, it's quite simple and it's not the questions that you look for in the standard. So I, I say, how big is the, con are the, how many contracts are there, right? And how big is the contract? Um, and I was having a, a discussion with an engagement partner once about whether or not something was a business combination. And they sent me the contract and it was 834 pages, including oh, the attachments. Definitely an asset. <laughs> so it's hard to imagine that you would need that much legalese to actually buy the garden shed. Yeah. So, so that's one thing. Look at the complexity of the arrangements to transfer it from the sellers to the, to the purchaser. So that's one thing. What does the company say about it in the public domain? So if the chief executive had a press conference and put out a press release and said, oh, we just bought this amazing company and we got these great people and, you know, we just see, you know, it's going to add so much value and fit neatly with our suite of products, it's starting to feel like a business, right? Did they have to do anything with the competition authority, right? If you have to ask the competition authority if you can execute a transaction, it means they're worried about market um, dominance, right? So that's all feeling really businessy like to me. Yeah. And the other thing is, so we know what the current standard says, but I think at the moment there's some standard setting change in this area. So yes. what, what's, the, what's the change, what's the board doing? The post-implementation review feedback came back that the too many things are seen to be businesses, right? And I usually articulate it as, I could argue that any asset is a business. We go back to the taxi. I could, I could argue that one taxi is a business, right? Because the words in the standard don't tell you what's not a business. Yeah. So what the respondents, I think, really asked the board for, both the FASB and the ISB, is tell us what's not a business, please. Some things must not be businesses. <laughs> tell us what they are. And certainly, so the FASB, because A, it's faster, and they started earlier, has, do, has done some standard setting, and they have uh, narrowed the definition of what's business, and so therefore there will be both fewer business combinations under US GAAP and fewer disposals of businesses, because on the US side, um, actually the disposal uh, requirements, the disclosure requirements around disposal of a business and allocating goodwill and all that kind of stuff probably created as much difficulty as the acquisition accounting stuff did. So. So the U.S. is done, and basically everybody's implemented because it was perceived to be a very preparer-friendly uh, changing gap, and people early adopted. The ISB is 
perhaps not as nimble, and they started after the FASB. And ISB standard setting always has a longer implementation time because it has to allow for endorsement, not just in the EU, but other places around the world. So the ISB is still in the standard setting phase. So they've done an exposure draft, they've got feedback, and they're um, starting to talk about it in board meetings. But we may see a standard this year. If we see a standard, it's going to be at the back end of the year, and then it's going to be a couple of years before people are going to be able to implement it. What I think will happen is the ISP will say, okay, it's available for early adoption. And if it's roughly looking like the FASB standard, then I suspect it will be endorsed pretty quickly in Europe and be available for early adoption from the time it's endorsed. And I get asked this question a lot, Mary, so you tell the people at home, can I, if I'm an IFRS repairer, um, early adopt an exposure draft? No. <laughs> so I need to okay. follow. Do I need to say that again? Yeah. <laughs> yes, please. No, you may not adapt an exposure draft. Okay, and we can't analogise to uh, the US gap whilst we still got current IFRS as well. Exactly. If we have IFRS guidance that applies to the transaction, we cannot look to another framework. So no, you cannot adapt the US gap uh, amendment. So um, just so the main change, I suppose, what is the main change the US has actually made that's going to result in more assets? So they've introduced a screening test and they've said if all of the fair value that you're paying is really concentrated in a single asset, it's less likely, it's, it's unlikely to be a business. So this is the, um, the, the single asset test, I yep. always call this. So if I buy one airplane, I've got a corporate jet. Yeah. Right. If I buy 50 airplanes, I've just bought an airline. Yeah. Right. <laughs> You've got a business. Right. So if I buy one office building, yeah. right, it's unlikely that that office building is going to... So all everything I pay for that office building is going to be about where the building is and how big it is and what class of office space it is, how much retail it is, et cetera, et cetera. And it's unlikely that there's going to be very much value associated with, for example, the in-place leases, because the assumption would be you could replace them at market rates. Yeah. So um, it's that screening test that's going to reduce the number of things that are businesses, I think. Okay, so it's like a rule. If you meet that rule, then it's an asset acquisition. You don't need to go on any yeah. further. So why, why do people care about if something's a business or an asset? What's the big deal? I, I, I think for IFRS, you get some very different accounting, particularly on the for business combinations. First thing is is you have to have you have to um, do your fair value exercise, right? So you fair value the assets and liabilities. It's not it's not just an allocation of what you pay. Uh, you the initial recognition exemption doesn't apply, so you end up with deferred tax on the fair value of assets you recognize for the first time or the fair value of some of your, your uh, step-ups. Um, and sometimes the deferred tax itself then gives rise to your, all of a sudden your debits and credits for your consideration don't balance. You need another debit. What's the debit? It's goodwill. And so there's then the company is kind of tied to the need to impairment test that goodwill every year until the end of time or it's impaired. And um, so those are kind of three of the the accounting reasons why people don't like business combination accounting. But I think one of the biggest ones is the rules around contingent consideration. This is something that really, the, in the preparer community especially, they really dislike it and they really think it's, it's wrong and bad accounting, which I would disagree with because I think I'm all about tell people what the liabilities are. But it's the, 
the effect of contingent consideration is if the business you bought is performing well, you end up with a big liability to the people who sold it to you and a thumping expense in the P&L for this good, well-performing business. Well, actually, the expense is all about how well you're doing with managing that business and how much you have to pay the people who sold it to you. So I think it's a contingent consideration is probably one of the reasons that people fight to get out of business combination accounting. So this is with contingent consideration, we're saying uh, I, I, pay, I bought a business today, I paid some today, and I'm going to pay some in the future contingent on an event. Yeah, well, it can be contingent on an event or performance of the business, right? So I might say, look, this business is going to storm away, right? Yeah. It's amazing, it's perfectly positioned for this change in technology or, you know, switch to mobile uh, banking or whatever it is and you're going to make a fortune with my business and you're like mm, I'm not so sure so I'll pay you some today and then if it does what you say it's going to do I'll pay you a whole bunch more in the future yeah. and that the IFRS 3 the business combination standard effectively requires you to book that fair value on day one mm -hmm. so one you've got to do a fair value exercise and I think it's more the subsequent treatment is it gets you to fair value every balance sheet date and that movement goes to the P&L. Yes. So you get volatility. Right. And, and, and you know, you can take it out of, uh, everybody takes it out of their alternative performance measures. You think, yep, but it's probably all about performance, isn't it? Anyway, uh, but, but it is that it's the volatility, it's the growing liability. And sometimes, you know, you might make a bad estimate. Right? So you might have this liability on the balance sheet that you're never going to have to pay. And then when you decide, okay, the business is really doing badly, I'm not going to have to pay the liability, you have a credit in the income statement. And, and that's just, so it's the, it's that kind of, it doesn't seem like it reflects performance yeah. to people. That's why one of the reasons they don't like it. So why, if you um, had an asset acquisition and you had contingent consideration, so you pay something today and something in the future, what, do you not account for that in the same way? What's the difference? What we have probably is more of a vacuum on asset accounting. So the ISB and the IFRIC wrestled with the what you do with contingent consideration for asset purchases for, I don't know, felt like an eternity. It was probably more like three or four years. Sure, it starts in about 2012 or something. <laughs> yeah. So, so they bounced it back and forth between them and uh, finally couldn't, come up with a consensus in the interpretations committee and the board just kept batting the, the issue away, right? And it's actually, I think it's a fairly profound question, right? Because there is, it is a fair amount about when do I have a liability and what's the purpose of the liability? So, so they kept batting the question away. And so what we have is an agenda decision from the IFRIC that essentially enshrines some diverse practice. And it basically is um, people either tend to treat it like it's analogized to IFRS 3, book the liability, sometimes remeasure the liability periodically, or they wait until the liability is virtually certain and then they probably add the debit to the asset and record the liability and eventually pay it. Okay, so more of a cost accumulation approach. So, so that's cost accumulation and then kind of the analogy to IFRS 3, but people will, uh, companies will be using a, a remeasurement model, but still adding the changes to the asset to the extent they are not essentially uh, unwinding of the discount rate. Because if you've got movements in your liability, they're gonna arise from the unwinding of the discount rate, and they're gonna arise from changes in your estimate of the cash flows. Okay, so, so one of the big things then is that um, contingent consideration accounting is quite potentially quite different between business versus assets. Yes. 
So just to end our podcast, if we go back to business combinations, is there anything that you really advise people to watch out for that they miss, um, that they should keep an eye on if they've got a transaction coming up? Well, let's start with the bargain purchase gain. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, there are, interestingly, you'll see periods in time where there may be bargain purchase gains uh, available. Because bargain purchase gain says, I'm paying less for that business than the value of the assets less the liabilities. Right. So I'm actually paying less than its expected future cash flows. Um, and we saw that when that when there's when money is tight, right? When when nobody's liquid. So we saw that in like 2008, 2009 with the financial crisis, when you couldn't sell a book of mortgages to save your life, no matter how sound you asserted the mortgages were. So so occasionally you do see moments where the market is um, just doesn't have any appetite for the assets that you're selling, even if fundamentally it might believe that they're going to produce cash flows. But if you get a bargain purchase, you really need to understand why. And if it's not apparent to you, so it's not like the seller's not in distress, or you have synergies available to you that aren't available to any other market participant, if you don't immediately understand, if you're not expecting a bargain purchase and you get one, you have to go back and figure out why. Because quite often, somewhere in the various fair value models and stuff that you've done, you you've probably something. made a mistake. You've missed something or you've made a mistake. So um, I'm pretty skeptical about bargain purchases and I really have to understand the fundamentals that gave rise to them. What Some other things that you see that people miss frequently is um, once you've decided to sell a business, it, it the, the agreement to sell um, may trigger golden parachutes, for example, for your senior executives. And sometimes those can be very, very substantial. I had a client that did a transaction a few years ago, very, very big company, and when these, um, uh, because they had an equity investment in the thing that they bought, these uh, golden parachutes actually took like two cents off earnings in a quarter when they hadn't projected it, right? So, so that was a very unhappy, very unhappy surprise. So, you know, what are some of the change in control clauses for employees? Maybe there's some uh, change in control clauses around debt, debt that, ne debt that needs to be repaid, liabilities that are triggered by the fact that there's been, a, uh, the business has been sold. So I think that's something that produces unpleasant surprises. Things that people miss, um, have you got all of the assets and all of the liabilities? So environmental liabilities, for example, is, is something where maybe the company hadn't, you know, had, had thought about them in a different way, hadn't booked them. Um, and, uh, you know, for assets, it's have you got the customer relationships? Have you got the brand? But when you've done all of that accounting for all of those, are your models such that you've um, not accounted for stuff more than once, right? Yeah. So, so we do see, we, so, so modeling all of those complex intangibles, so like in a consumer business, for example, yeah. or a, a brand business, making sure that you only use your cash flows once uh, is, is fairly important. So people, sometimes you get double counting, right? And you're staring at it and you think, no, there's something wrong in there, right? What's the, so what's the, the problem in the assumptions? So I, I think it's, it's some of those things. There are some really complicated stuff there's some really complicated stuff around pre-existing relationships um, and indemnifications, and for those, you just need an expert yep. to try and work through what the literature says, because it's really complex. And I think the thing that people forget to disclose is why did we do the transaction, 
and what's in the goodwill. Yeah, not just synergies. Synergies, workforce. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a little bit more detail. Yeah, a little bit more granular that's just not very credible. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Mary. I think we really got to the grips of what is a business versus an asset and why does it even matter? Why do people care about it? If you want any more information on um, what's going on with the definition of a business or what, how you account for business or asset transactions, please look at pwc.com slash inform. Uh, thank you for joining us today. I was joined by Mary Dolson and I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. Happy accounting. Enjoy your IFRS day. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.